Good evening, everyone. I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I get to teach us this text tonight. We're teaching through uh, We Want a King. Uh, Derek just read a section out of 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11, which is kind of this, this turning point in the story where 1 Kings 6 is all about the details of the construction project, and 1 Kings 8 is all about the dedication of the construction project, and this kind of the moment where the 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 building is turned into the temple when the ark, which represents God's presence, is the location of God's presence, is brought in, culminating in this cloud fills the room and the priests are overwhelmed with the presence of God and have to get out of there. So I'm teaching both of those. On um, 1 Kings 6 really is a detail section. Uh, if you want to know a little bit of confession from me, the first time I read this text, I was like, this is going to be a boring dud of a sermon because it's a bunch of details and I'm not a details guy. So there's my confession to you on that. I tend to read this type of stuff. And then 1 Kings 8 is about a page and a half long of a prayer. And I'm kind of a short prayer guy. So I, uh, I read this and I was like, all right, well, uh, this is boring. And so then I was asking the question. Next question was like, why is this boring, right? Because I don't want to assume this is boring. But a more accurate way of saying is I am bored by this. You know, that's my responsibility to filter what I'm experiencing here. And it made me think about how a couple weeks ago, I smoked these two gigantic, beautiful briskets, and they're just like pulling apart, and then my son wanted chicken nuggets instead. And I was like, you know what? This is a you problem, not a me problem, you know? And that's probably what God thinks when he's, I'm telling him I'm bored by the section of scripture. He's like, this is a you problem, not a me problem. You got to work, get yourself on board here, okay? And so I do think that's important to say that part of our church confession is that all scripture is equally inspired but nowhere does it say all scripture is equally interesting. So there's that. You can do what you want with that. Anyway, stop thinking about why is this boring to me, the details. You've got to kind of work through that. And I've been kind of confronted by this. You know, I've heard the phrase, the devil's in the details. Uh, but reality is, you know, God's in the details. He seems to care about the details of this stuff, right? I remember when I was a kid and we were getting a new fridge and a new dishwasher and painting our house and getting a new roof, which like when it's your house, it was like exciting stuff. And then I went to the kids at school in fourth grade. It was like, we're getting a new fridge. And like, none of them cared at all <laughs> because couldn't like, because like, my environment was changed. So it's like when it's your house, uh, you care about the details and you experience the change and it's meaningful to you. And this is God's house. He cares about the details. Not only that, but God's people are building him a space and they're excited about it because they're the ones doing the building here. And so if you are a details person, by all means, feel free to read the details of that. There's a lot of um, cubits this length, cubits that length, and describing all the materials. And some of those are uh, meant to point back to creation, that creation was a place where heaven and earth came together, where God dwelled with humanity. And that's like the temple's meant to be a picture of like what it was like before the fall, where uh, this in this space, God and humans dwell together in peace. And because of the blood of all the sacrifices that were made, some of that's what's going on there. Um, but really what I want us to see is the way that this most meaningfully applies to us, and especially like it's got me thinking sentimentally about this space, about this building, right? We moved into this space in 2019, uh, July of 2019, and then, you know, five, six months after that, it became uh, a, a second-rate two uh, video studio because of COVID, right? And it was like, this is a terrible video studio. It's a great place to gather, uh, but it, thinking about like that long ago, my, my son, you know, just turned, or he turns three tomorrow, 36 months uh, the bumper-to-bumper warranties expired. You know, it's, it's all, all on me now. And so there's like some sentimental reflection I have on how we christened or planned or thought about this place that I want us to look at. But really I want us to see about how uh, the ordinary things like buildings 
matter to the supernatural God. And the ordinary things like what goes in the middle of the room matters to God. And basic things about like how we even think about time as it relates to God fulfilling his promise matters to us. And so I began with a little confession of telling you I wasn't as interested in this as I should have been, but I became interested as I studied more. So hopefully you along with me can become interested as I share with you what I saw in this text. So let me pray and we'll walk through some stuff here. All right. Jesus, thank you for the promise you made to uh, dwell among a sinful people despite their sinfulness. Thank you for uh, the details we get to read about and hear about and uh, the spare no expense factor on uh, creating a house for God. Father, I do ask that you would help me uh, shed light on this text and how we'd see ourselves uh, as continuing the tradition of the people who gather around your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. So the, the first thing that I want us to check out here is uh, just kind of a clarification on how we think about God's promises, right? Promise is a huge theme in this section. And when Solomon goes to pray, he's reiterating this word promise, 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 promise. And so I'm going to read a couple of those for you. I have them on the screen in 1 Kings 8. As he's praying, he's thanking the Lord for his promise. Here's what it says, Blessed be the Lord. Oh, go to 1 Kings 8. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who with his right hand has fulfilled what he promised. Go to the next one. We're going to go through these pretty quick. The Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Keep going. Blessed be the Lord of the Lord of who has given rest this, to his people Israel according to all that he promised, not one word has failed in all his good promise. You know, one, one of the ways to kind of see what's the big idea here is to look for the recurring words. And there's this promise, promise, promise. And so right after God takes his people out of Egypt, he promises in the book of Exodus, a temple, a dwelling place, a space where they would dwell. And he gives them this temporary measure called a tabernacle, which was similarly designed as a temple, but it was meant to be a bit of a mobile home of sorts. God's got this kind of expensive RV. And here he gets, you know, not his like starter home, but his like retirement home. He gets a temple. It's a, it's a semi-permanent space or as permanent as humans can make it. And so they're waiting for this and waiting for this temple to come, the place where this nomadic people, Israel, who's wandering through the wilderness looking for a place to finally hang their hat. And here's how this section begins in chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Kings. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord, 480 years. These are the type of texts that remind me that I have no idea what patience is. 480 years waiting on God to fulfill a promise. Just another confession for you. If I feel like I'm praying for something for like a week and nothing moves or budges, I'm like, well, I guess I'm an atheist. God's not real. He doesn't care. <laughs> like, Doosh. Like, I, I expect, you know, this is like, this is America, you know, like, uh, have it your way, Burger King. You know, I place the order, I drive the next window, and boom, there it is. And I'm supposed to wait for like days, weeks, months, years, generations for something. If God really cared about it, why isn't he doing something about it now? Not only that, but Solomon, he gets inaugurated as king, and it still is four years before he begins construction. I can think about waiting four years for something. It's still way too long, but I don't even have a category for waiting 480 years. What's the deal with that? God's promising to deliver on his promises on his 
timeline. And important thing about the word promise here, even prophecy, is we, because of like um, modern pagan culture, even like I think we see through the lens of Harry Potter too often, we see prophecy or we see the prophets and we think predictions. Like these kind of witches and wizards, people kind of put a goofy hat on and like go into a trance-like state and then all of a sudden predicting the future. And then they're like making educated guesses about what's going on. Or because of God's omniscience, he knows the future and they're letting us in on it. But it's actually not the way biblical prophecy works. Biblical prophecy is not about predictions. It's about promises. This is not an all-knowing God guessing and telling, letting you in on the future based on his foreknowledge. Prophecy is about the all-powerful God telling you, here's what I am going to do, period. We don't rest on God's prophecies because he's a good predictor of the future. We rest on God's prophecies because he is a sovereign, all-knowing author of world history. And he's the only one who can actually deliver on promises. The best of intentions people with all the earthly power in the world cannot actually make promises that they're certain of. I promise you'll get a raise next year. Then the guy gets struck by lightning or whatever. People die. We're not all powerful. People with clear consciences who are not trying to lie actually have no power to bring about any type of promise. Only the sovereign one who controls world history actually has the capacity to deliver on a promise. Not a politician, not an economic forecaster, not a pastor, not some earthly spiritual guru, not anybody can actually deliver on or bring about the future. Only God can. And so there's only one person that you can actually meaningfully bank your life on, and it's the person whose promises actually are going to happen every single time, maybe not according to your timeline, but certainly according to his, and he's wiser than you are, and that's God Most High. The question I have for us as a church is, do you actually believe God's promises are promises, or are you to believe that they're guesses, or predictions, or wishful thinking, or an inspiring word to keep you going. Because when Jesus comes back and makes all things new and wipes away every tear from every eye and raises the dead to life again, this is not some shot in the arm of optimism to keep you going. This is a promise. It is going to happen, and you must bank your life on it or on something else substantially less dependable. The building of the temple is just a good example to me and to us of God has kept his promises. Trust him. He might disappoint you, but that's not because he didn't keep his promises. It's probably because you misunderstood his timing. Next thing we see in this text has to do with the process of building the temple. So we see that they waited and waited and waited for God's promise to come to pass. 480 years later, he delivers on it. Then it takes a long time to build this. And this is another thing, and we just have no concept of this. It says this in verse 38. He was seven years in building it. You know, I drive past down Pecos on the way to this church, and it's like one week, dirt lot, two weeks later, whole building with the roof. I don't know how they're doing it, but it's impressive. I don't know, like, I'm sure there's engineers somewhere going like, we know how we do it, you know, but I don't know how it happened. But like this idea of a building project taking seven years, I did like this space, which is pretty substantial, took 18 months and it should have taken 15. And what were they waiting for? You know, I don't, you know, like the steel tax or whatever happened, kind of delayed this stuff and you're just frustrated, but you, you're, you're waiting and waiting, but seven years to build this project. And here's the reason why I think they, that God had it, the project take seven years is because this temple is meant to point us back to the creation that just as God creates the world as his dwelling place, 
as the, as, the, as the great temple, the space where God's spirit hovered over the face of the whole earth. He does that in seven days. And here you have the temple in seven years. It's meant to be this picture of perfection. It took the perfect amount of time in God's economy. I'm sure the people were like frustrated by it. But th- it's not just seven years of work and hard busyness. There's actually something about the process of building it that I think is significant. We see this in chapter 6, verse 7. When the house of the Lord was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry. So there's the place where they're harvesting the stones and cutting them out individually, hammering them into space. And says, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it's being built. That for seven years, the construction side of God's house sounded like this. I think about the reverence that would create. It's kind of eerie. We're building God's. We're not just, this isn't a playhouse. This isn't a tent. We're building the long-awaited temple. We're built, like there's this sobriety, a carefulness. Right? I went to Walmart the other day to buy my son a birthday cake because nothing but the best for my son. And he, he picked it out. It was $4.99, vanilla with sprinkles on it, like four inches. And, and so... As I'm take, doing the self-checkout at Walmart, I couldn't find the barcode, so I looked at the thing like this, smushed up the cake. He was all upset about it. I was like, Ooh. scanned it, put it in there. And compared to, like, two years ago for his one-year-old birthday party, my wife made a cake, right? And I remember transferring that, like, because she made it. Like, it was ours. And I'm also, I didn't want to, it's scarier to make my wife frustrated than my son, you know? So I was careful with the cake, you know, versus, you know, this Walmart cake, it's whatever. It's like, like there's, you're, you're careful with what you care about, right? And they're being careful and quiet. They're not even treading like la- loudly in construction, but there's like a, a, a severity to what's going on here. You think about how much that would form you as a construction worker who's doing the quiet for seven years, bit by bit, and they're clanging somewhere else, but in the actual space itself, there's like this quiet and anticipation growing and developing. There's how, what, what a powerful picture of what we care about, we're careful with. I think it's important for us to see this, that a lot of the times when we're hurting other people or when we're uh, sinning against other people, it's not because we've had like something bad in our heart. Like rarely do I think like people in this church when they're like clashing heads or sitting against each other, rarely is it like someone has malicious evil intent in their heart. And usually there's a carelessness that results in pain, like a lack of carefulness. We're careful with what we care about. And so I want us to ask the question, like, what are we careful with? What are we care? What are we careful about? What do we care deeply about? Because that would affect what's going on here. In the next section we see here, um, can you go to the, the next slide? Uh, is all about um, presence or priorities. We're going to talk about priorities here. Is what goes at the center. This is this is a part of me that's been like really sentimental about this. Um, thinking about our building and our space is this is true about architecture. That if you want to find out what someone cares about, uh, you can actually get a lot about their values and and from looking at the spaces they design and they choose to inhabit. Like for example, the average American house. The center of the house is the TV because what we value most is being entertained without any blips on the radar, right? Get all that stuff, point at the TV, 
and then drool till Jesus comes back. That's like the, the default American structure, right? But if you looked at our church and you walked around with someone who's brand new here and said, hey, let's come up with a list of like top five things we value just based on the architecture of this place. First thing that happens is you'd probably drive up and see this ginormous cross in the front, this like 200 foot steel cross and go like, well, that seems to matter to them. They care about something there. You know, I like driving past it with my son. He's still a bit of a heretic. He's working on it though. You know, he says, that's where Jesus died. Jesus is still dead. But when the good man comes, he'll be undead. I'm like, eh, close enough. You know, that's fine. He's, he's just barely three. You know, we're working on the kids ministry curriculum, tightening that one up uh, a little bit. But he's, you know, it's like, okay, first thing you get is big cross. Jesus died for your sin. That's what they care about. The next thing you experience is these, these outdoor spaces, the lot, uh, the, 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 courtyard, the lobby, uh, windows that are up because you can see people, interact with people. There's this big coffee bar so people can linger and connect and hang out. And you say, okay, well, they care about Jesus died for your sins. They care about people gathering and lingering, not just coming in, consuming content and getting out of there, but there's meant to be this like lingering thing going on. Then you come into this space and you go, well, they care about Everything's kind of pointed at the preaching and the praising, so they care about preaching and praising. And then you look at how half of the building is devoted to kids. They must care about families and kids. So you can kind of derive the family values of the church from this. And this is really encapsulated meaningfully in, uh, so I'm going to read this. Uh, so when we, the first Sunday in this building, uh, we had this prayer of dedication over the space. And so uh, when we're trying to like really set the tone for what we saw the space as being. And I was thinking about it just the other day. I was, I was thinking, I bet half of you, two-thirds of you weren't here in 2019 and didn't hear this prayer and, and missed out on it. And I want to read it and help you get a little bit of a feel for the heart we're hoping would happen in this in this space. But it was, um, I hadn't heard it in three years, and I just asked Luke to resend it to me, and, and he did. And here's, what it, here's the prayer of dedication over this space. Oh, Father, you have blessed us far more abundantly beyond all we've asked or thought. You've given us Jesus, our greatest treasure and only hope. In faith, we've trusted you as you've provided what we need to build this building. Now we ask that you might build us, your church, to be a faithful community of your kingdom. Please use this campus for your glory in the generations to come. May these windows be covered in thousands of tiny fingerprints. These are the parts that are my favorite part. May these windows be covered in thousands of tiny fingerprints. May we spill coffee as we lose ourselves in laughter and conversation. May balloons of celebration get stuck in the rafters. May the waters of baptism overflow with new life in Jesus. May many wedding rings be exchanged and many more wedding vows be strengthened. May the grass be matted down with the joyful feet of youth. May the carpet catch our tears of gratitude and grief as we mourn those who are entering your presence. May the bread and the cup enable us to taste and see that Jesus is good. May these walls hear desperate prayers and delightful praise. God, to you be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So that's what we value most. And here's what we see in 1 Kings 6 and 8 about what the centerpiece of the temple was. So we see in 1 Kings 6, verse 23, there's like this, you know, there's the outer courts, the inner courts, the, the Holy of Holies, and this like inner sanctuary thing. It says in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So cubits like elbow to fingertip-ish, about 18 inches, 10 cubits high. So it's 15 something feet, gigantic, scary looking angel creatures with um, each wing 
uh, is five cubits in length. So again, like eight, nine feet, something like that. Um, and so, and the, it's 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. So it's like about 15 feet up, 15 feet over, these two gigantic angel things with their wings touching um, at the end. They put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of one touched one wall, when the other touched the other wall, and their wing touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So right in the center of the inner sanctuary, there are these two angels with these overtouching wings. Then at the dedication ceremony of the temple, um, the elders carry in the ark, which was the house of God's presence. And they're carrying it by these long poles because you don't want to touch the ark because a couple uh, pages ago, someone touched the ark and died. So they carry it by the pole. And they're carrying it in and they set it down. It says the poles are so long that they're seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. And there they are till this day. Meaning they took the Ark of the Covenant and they placed it right underneath those angels, the cherubim that were kind of guarding it. And it says there is nothing in the Ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Those are the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So at the center piece of the center of the nation of Israel, in the center of the innermost places, guarded by these two angels, is the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant, representing the focal point of God's presence, is the instruction of God's Word, God's law, God's teaching, God's instruction. That what mattered most to the people of Israel was the fact that they were a covenant people shaped by the law of the Lord, shaped by the instruction of the Lord. See, all the time, we, get, we put this like love of God and law of God intention, and I just think we got to stop doing that. That the loving Father, King of Kings, the Holy One, teaches and instructs His people how to live in love. He's not doing it to oppress or repress. He's doing it to instruct and cause to flourish. The other day we had some folks over at our house, and one of the, we were playing basketball in the front yard. One of the balls were rolling into the street, and the kid went running out. And I think one of the kid's parents yells, Stop! And the kid stops, and the ball was in the street. And thank goodness they listened because it's the street. There's cars going back and forth. And is the parent yelling at the child, Stop! designed to repress and repress and, and, and subjugate and just test the submissiveness of a child? No, absolutely not. The law of instruction of the parent is there to cause the child to flourish and to protect and, and, and enable to grow up well. And we have to understand that all of God's world, all of God's teaching, even if it might feel oppressive and repressive at times, is actually given by design to cause us to live into the fullness of our humanity. That God is a father and his law is our teaching. And here's the deal is right at the focal point of where the Ten Commandments are, the Spirit of God is most tangibly experienced. The smoke, the cloud filled the, the voice, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And we cannot, in our minds or in our hearts, separate God's presence from God's law or God's person from his teaching. It can't happen. Christ Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here is exactly what it means by keep. He doesn't mean obey every single one because nobody can actually obey every single one. But there's like this cherishing. I'm keeping them safe. I'm holding them dear. I'm holding them tightly. That no person besides Christ has ever fully and faithfully obeyed all the commandments. We want to try, but he's not expecting us to actually like to succeed in doing that. He understands that we're sinful until he returns. Uh, he does require it because he's absolutely just. But what he's saying is, cherish my word. Keep it safe. Put it at the center of our lives. And we, we understand that there's a lot of perks to being involved in church, right? Your kids have friends. They get some energy out. You get a break for 90 minutes. There's good coffee in the lobby. The music's pretty good. You know, it's every now and then there's a joke that works or whatever. And like there's, there's, there's socialization happening. But I got to say, 
all of that is just a bunch of garbage and worth nothing if the word of the Lord is not at the center of what we're doing. We're not, we cannot experience the drift into social club. We have to say we are the covenant people of God here to submit to his word together, trying to build one another up as we do so. That just as Israel had their priorities in line, the centerpiece of their whole deal was the law of God. So also the centerpiece of our whole deal is the law of God. If you did an inspection on your values, on your priorities, time spent thinking, time spent agonizing, time spent inspecting, time spent measuring, would the center of the center of the center be God's law? Or would it be something else? You know, most of the time we're moving targets. You know, faithful for moments. Maybe for windows, but we just keep repenting. That's the thing that separates God's people from not God's people is not necessarily the amount we sin, but definitely it is the amount we repent. You just keep coming back, keep coming back. You find yourself off course, you keep coming back. That's priority. Next thing we see here is just a word about presence. Right? It's uh, like I think about prayer and the presence of God and what we're trying to do here. Like there's, there's kind of like two big dedication things we did besides thing that went on here is one is like when the foundation was in, we came into here um, before the carpet was down and a whole bunch of us wrote prayers on the ground, praying for um, our non-Christian friends and family that we hoped would come here and be saved. Some of you, your name might be on the ground if you've become a Christian in the last two to three years, something like that. Some of you uh, might have friends who are still have unfulfilled prayers yet, or at least prayers that have not been answered definitively. And yes, we prayed for people and trying to remind ourselves that like this is a house of prayer and we're here to be a missional house of prayer, trying to bring people into God's presence. And the other thing we did was we uh, came out when it was just a big dirt lot. Before even that, we got these little jars that said home away from home on them because we wanted this place to be our home away from our eternal home, which is with God and the new creation. Uh, and we spread out over the dirt lot and prayed over the land and prayed over the building and prayed over the ministry that'd be done in the building. And we scooped up the jars of dirt and we put the tops on them and took them home and put them on our desks and put them on our counters. And like, they're like reminders to pray for the people that would eventually come here. And there's like a, a really exciting moment for me, which was after we moved into the building, I threw away my jar of dirt. I was like, I got the real thing. I don't need like, I don't need a reminder to pray for the building. That's not the building because I have the building because I'm here. I have the real thing. That This little jar of dirt was a nice foretaste of the real thing, which is this building. Uh, and the question we have to ask is, this temple that Solomon makes, is it the real thing or is it the foretaste of the real thing? Because even Solomon, after he builds it, says this in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built? That in the same breath that he's like, 480 years, the promise is fulfilled. Let's put our money where our mouth is and spend buku bucks building the beautiful house for the Lord. He's like, yeah, but it's just, it's just not the real thing yet. There's something better than this. You can't be contained in some house. And when I think about like our corner of the world, like I just met this new couple moved to town from Chicago and they're planning a church in Chandler and the husband and wife. And one of the things he asked me is like, 
I got a question for you as like a local, and he said, what is that? And he points at the LDS temple. He's like, I've never met a Mormon person. What? They didn't have a lot in Chicago, or at least uh, he didn't, I mean, whether they have a lot or not, I don't know. He didn't see it. He's like, what's the deal with that? And when you meet with LDS missionaries and you talk to them about uh, space, like part of the line of reasoning goes like this. Like you have Solomon's temple, it was destroyed. You have uh, this the second temple that was constructed and then was destroyed in AD 70. And then there's no temple on the earth from AD 70 until the late 1800s when Joseph Smith gets additional revelations. Like God's people have temples, we need temples, and they start building temples. And so I've toured the LDS temples, and they're beautiful places. And if you want to, like, understand this, that the LDS temple down the street is a lot like, a lot closer to 1 Kings chapter 6 than this building is. It's a lot more similar, a lot more gold, a lot more, like, ornateness. And so a, a big pressing question for us who live in Gilbert, Mesa, basically Arizona, Utah is, should we have a temple? Are, are we are we wrong about not having a temple? What's the deal? Should we like get together and do a Protestant temple? Should we be flocking to uh, the LDS temple up the street and doing and how, like are we thinking right about temple? And here's here's what I want to say is uh, no, we don't need a temple. And here's why is because when Jesus comes to Earth, he's shattering the categories of you had a temple, but now there's something better. That's here. Here's what it says in First John, or in John chapter 1. Jesus says this. You can put it on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, that's Christ, and dwelt among us. That word, phrase, dwelt among us, in the Greek could be translated tabernacled or templed among us. That this person, Jesus, who was God and was with God and was God, and he takes on flesh, he's fully God and fully human, that the entire purpose of the temple was how can God and man coexist in the same space or same place that was the temple, but here we have in Christian revelation is not that they're coexisting in the same place, but they're coexisting in the same place person, and that is Jesus. And it says, we've seen his glory, glories of the only Father from the Son. And Jesus says this, and he confronts the Jews on this reality when they're talking about the temple. And he says this in John chapter 2, just the next chapter. He says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, pointing to the temple that would eventually be destroyed in seven days, and says, in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he's speaking about the temple of his body. That Christians don't make pilgrimages to Mecca to find the holy place. We don't build spaces because they have some special location of God's place, but we actually have access to, directly by the Spirit, the person who is the true and greater temple, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't have to go somewhere. We gather together as God's people. And then Christ has died, and He's risen, and He calls us His body. Is that insane? And 1 Peter talks about how we are being built together, that each of us individually are living stone being placed together as a temple, as a dwelling place for God, so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? See, I was taught this text in middle school as like a, therefore, don't smoke cigarettes. But it's actually not Paul's point here. 
He's not saying don't go to McDonald's, smoke cigarettes, or get tattoos. That's not his point. Paul didn't have McDonald's, cigarettes, or tattoos in his time. He's not correcting that. And we, we understand that in the English, it's, it's hard to render this, but it should say, do y'all know that your body, collectively, y'all's body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That it's not just that we as individuals are God's temple, but we collectively, the gathered people of God, are the dwelling place of God's Spirit, that He dwells among us and within us and between us, and we together, when we sit under preaching, take the sacraments and praise, that there is a special uh, a presence to God that's given in our midst. That when we gather on Sundays, this is one of the reasons why online church, I think, is a misnomer and is ultimately false and totally doesn't deliver on what it promises is that when you go to online church, you're not actually doing church. You are watching people do church. That it's our body built together into a temple of the Holy Spirit that we can throw out our jaws of dirt called spaces and places and temples because we have the real thing. And it's the people of God worshiping, animated by the Spirit, submitting together, bearing witness to God and to the world that the presence of God is among us and within us as we gather in that special way all the time. That buildings are good. God obviously puts his money where his mouth is on buildings and they, they, they shape us and they, they assemble us and they gather us for meaningful purposes. But the building is, has nothing to do now with special access to God's presence. It is as the Spirit raises hearts to life and builds us together and shapes us together. And that first Peter text, that we are the living stones placed into the temple. Like going back to the way that this temple was assembled in the quiet place, without clamoring, without racket, but each stone handled with like dignity and value and purpose and meaning. Like it's the same way that we, our lives with God are shaped in the quiet spaces, in solitude, with the Lord, in prayer, not just clamoring and, and energy, but just the, the silence and the meaning and the purpose and the direction, but there's this value and carefulness and, and cherishedness for each one of us that we are playing a role being placed by the Spirit into the temple of God, which is a dwelling place. And so this is one of the reasons why gathering together is so important and so vital. It's because do you not know that your body, y'all, Redemption Gateway, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not the temple. There's a lot of other gathering places of God's people all across the face of the globe that gathered today, some of them yesterday, worshiping the Lord. We're not the only people selling the good news of Jesus that's accurately. There's a lot of great churches around here, a lot of great churches across the face of the earth. But we're one of the temples of God's Spirit. So seeing that privilege, acknowledging that responsibility, and seeing ourselves as these individually placed stones carved out by the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, with appointment in the building that is God's people. This is, this is our world we're living in. Animated, charged, led by the Spirit of God, under the law of God, prioritizing His Word and instruction. What a privilege. Let's pray and sing together. Lord, I pray that you will even as we sing, that we'd have this sense in our hearts that we are your dwelling place, that you are between us, within us, among us, connected to us. I ask that you would inhabit our praises and that we'd see this gathering as a temple of your spirit. 
God, help us embrace that responsibility and let us uh, lead lives that shine that light. And God, I pray that you would help us see the freedom that comes with knowing with knowing that you are not some predictor of the future, but the one who delivers on the future with promises. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.